Look, if you want, I could use you inside like we did praise last year. If I hear the music, I'm gonna dance. On this episode, we're talking about season two of The Wire. It's possibly the best or the worst season of The Wire, depending on how you feel about the show. So we're going to be talking about that this week. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay, so we're going to start with how season one ended. In your opinion, what were your thoughts on the ending of season one? So my thoughts about the show was that I enjoyed it. It was good storytelling, um, great acting. I had already become a Wood Harris fan, just seeing him in Paid in Full and Above the Rim. And it's just funny to watch him play like various drug dealers, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, I enjoyed the show. It was pretty good. I wouldn't say it was my favorite show or anything like that, but I thought it was really good. I was just drawn into it immediately right? because I like that kind of stuff. And it was really well done, so... I was excited about seeing where this story was going to go. Season two. When we were preparing for this episode, I actually rewatched the last episode of season one. Okay. Just to kind of remind me of where it ended just before season two, which Mm -hmm. is going to be the focus of today's conversation. Right. You know, one of the biggest issues, shall I say, about season two on the first watch anyways, is that it felt out of place. Right. But after re-watching it and knowing how, you know, the story plays out and the story ends, there were a couple points where I guess you could say it was a bit of foreshadowing for season two. Okay. So season one of The Wire basically, you know, focuses on the Barksdale crew, um, the drug dealing and like the projects and stuff. And right. they get introduced to the cops. At the end of episode one, they're trying to bring the Barksdale case to the feds. But the feds are like, hmm... You don't have any information on any suppliers, though, so they weren't really interested because they wanted to catch, like, big wigs and stuff, yeah. right? It's funny because it just sounds like a throwaway comment, but knowing where the show goes now, that feels like foreshadowing. Yeah. Because, oh, she sort of mentioned, hmm, we want to catch where the drugs are coming from. Yeah, not on this end of it. Exactly. This is too small time for them. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the closing scene montage... You actually see drugs being sold in white neighborhoods by white drug dealers, which we had not seen at all throughout season one. So these are things that you don't really, I don't think you would notice. And I certainly didn't the first time I watched it. Yeah, I didn't either. And I don't even think I saw it the second time we watched it. It wasn't until this third time when I was preparing for this episode and really like trying to look out for stuff. I didn't catch it until you mentioned it. Yeah. So there you go. It's really something that you wouldn't really notice unless you were looking for it. So I thought that was really smart um, how they kind of slid that in. But when I was watching it the first time, you know, all I remembered really was like the Barksdales and the mm-hmm. cops. When season two started, we were introduced to a new sort of setting, storylines, the docks. Uh, hello, we were in the projects. What are we doing at the docks, right? And then we get all these new characters. Yeah, it's like, who are these people? The union leader, Frank Sabatka, and his son, Ziggy, and his nephew, Nikki, as well as just sort of all the, the guys who worked on the yeah. docks. What did you think about that? I really didn't understand what was going on. Because coming out of season one, like you said, the focus was on the cops trying to catch Avon and his crew and bring down the Barksdale organization. So going into season two, you think it's going to be the same story being continued. Mm -hmm. And even at the beginning of the first episode of season two, it's kind of shaped up to, okay, we're about to pick up where we left off. Well, we see Bodhi first, then we switch to the docks. Yeah. So it's like, what's going on here? Who are all these new people? And what do they have to do with the story? Because it, like you said, it just doesn't seem like it was in place. Yeah. All of a sudden it's these blue collar workers um, who seemingly have nothing to do with the drug trade. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, since Avon's in jail now, maybe all his corner boys got to go get real jobs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And they're going to be working down at the dock somehow. And there's going to be like some sort of racial component (laughs) to it, whereas the white guy's not liking the black guys and vice versa. So I was just confused and I didn't know what was going to come of it. And then we also get introduced to uh, the major, major um, uh, Valchek and his beef with Frank Sabatka yeah. over a stained glass window at a yeah. church. 
just because of this window, the entire season two happens. So he's upset that this sort of blue collar dock worker guy um, somehow donated enough money to the church to get a stained glass window that he decides, oh, he doesn't have this kind of money. He must be doing drugs or something illegal. So he sets up a whole detail just because of a beef over a stained glass window. So <laughs> not only is that silly, now we know that the Sabatkas are somebody important, or at least we have an idea that somehow he's going to be the focus in this season. So you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Yeah. The episode basically ends with them finding dead girls in a container. So we're like, all right. I mean, we saw Bodhi at the beginning, but there's no drugs. Um, <laughs> Avon's in jail. There's all these new characters that we've never seen before. It's like, what the hell does the Barksdales have to do with these dead girls in the shipping container? Exactly. How are they going to tie this together? And so it was really confusing because you're just like, who are these people? What show am I watching? Right? <laughs> right. Like even though season one sort of ended with um like the Barksdales going to jail, like Avon and D'Angelo and a bunch of the other players going to jail. It still seemed weird that <laughs> we're introduced to a completely new storyline, right. new characters. So it almost felt like they were like, hey, let's try to introduce characters that the quote mainstream audience might like to appeal to a wider audience. It felt like that at first. Until um, you start to get more yeah. into the story. So that was a little bit confusing for us as viewers, but even the actors felt that way. So I watched an interview with a few of the different actors. So Michael K. Williams, who plays um, Omar, he said he felt the same way, too. He thought, why are you bringing in all these new white people? Yeah. Like, what's happening to our story? And even uh, Lieutenant Carver, is he a lieutenant? I don't know. Not at this point. Not at this point. <laughs> I can't remember his real name, but he said he was also confused by this too and was a little they were both a little bit upset thinking that maybe they're going to end up getting written out of the show yeah. where is this going but there are some returning characters and we see them throughout the first episode mostly in episode two is when the other characters start to get more drawn into the story but the first episode kind of focuses on like you said the dock workers mm -hmm. uh so we get their personalities and see who they are. For example, the first thing we see with Ziggy is him losing one of the shipping containers. <laughs> like, there's a guy there to pick up the container. He's been there for like two hours. Ziggy swears he knows where it is, but he can't find it. And Frank has to come over and clean up the situation. How we doing? Ain't a problem, Chief. Fuck it ain't. I'm down here since eight for Crane to Chassis, and Tweety Bird here lost the can. It ain't lost. It's either in a base seven. Base seven is empty, man. You talk out today, you leave your box, don't ever come the fuck back. You hear me, Zig, you're fired. Fucking guy. He loses his job and he couldn't care less. He ain't fired, man. No? That's his father. Kind of establishing, here's Frank always cleaning up this guy's mess. So now we see the dynamic between Frank and Ziggy. Right. Like, this one's business, this one is a fuck up. <laughs> yeah. It establishes that right off the bat. <laughs> Also, we meet his cousin, Nikki, who is also working at the docks, but he seems to be what everybody thinks <laughs> is the smart one. He actually isn't. He's pretty much a fuck up just like Ziggy, mm -hmm. but we'll get into that later. So we see a lot of that in episode one. So yeah. we're introduced to a whole bunch of new characters right away. Though we do see um, some of our old faves like Bodhi, a.k.a. King of the Do-Rags as fashion. <laughs> Uh, specifically as fashion, because I don't think he's ever worn it like the way you would if you're just sleeping or something. Right? Like, no, he he ties it he, a couple times, okay. but, but it's usually. But even then, it's like tied on the side. Yeah, and he's always got the loose <laughs> flaps. So yeah, so we see him settling into middle management. Yeah, he's moved up he, a little bit. He's got his chest puffed out with a little bit of power. He got, <laughs> you know, he's got Stringer's ear a little bit more. He's feeling good. Yeah, he's still a prolific spitting skills the spit champion <laughs> yep just to emphasize his point he just like i don't know how he does it just through his <laughs> teeth and it just comes out the side and sometimes the stream is smaller or bigger depending on how upset he is or what <laughs> point he's trying to emphasize yeah i've seen people spit straight through their teeth but never off to the side yeah it's pretty um pretty impressive it is <laughs> some of our other old faves stringer he's now in charge Sort of, because Avon's in jail. He thinks he's in charge. Yeah, he's in charge by default. And we see McNulty on the boat. Kima's now a house cat. Because yes. <laughs> her lady does not want her out in the streets after she got shot yeah, in the which is fair. season one. Yes, fair. So she's working on getting her law degree. Yeah. And yeah. She, like you said, she's the house cat yeah, now. Keeping her inside, as they call her a house cat. <laughs> Freeman is now partners with Bunk yeah. in Homicide. Yep, he's gotten out of 
that what was that unit the uh like forfeiture or something, something like that. Yeah, some, something where he was just in the basement all the time, making his little wooden <laughs> right. with his new desk. lady, Chardine, not quite a stripper, is <laughs> but not quite not a stripper. Yep. Um. So yeah, we do get to see some of our old faves, but also with McNulty being on the boat and Avon being in jail, you also feel like now these stories are not as important. Yeah. Um. So you're coming into the first episode just like what are they doing who are these people and why are the people we know feel why did they feel secondary Mm -hmm. because we actually rewatched the whole series a couple months ago so what do you think what is your impression on season two now now that you know how the whole story goes season two is the most important stretch of episodes for the entire series Mm -hmm. i agree because it ties everything together. Things that we don't know are going to be tied back to season two. Right. Things that aren't going to be paid off until season four, season five. The basis for it happens in this season. Because now we see that all these new characters that have been introduced has allowed them to tell a much richer, fuller story than just drugs in the projects. Yeah. It's like, nah. You need <laughs> you need some Europeans, you need some Colombians, you need some like political corruption, yeah. you need some police corruption. Like you need a lot of stuff. This thing is bigger than happen. Nino Brown. You need yes, it is. <laughs> you need some people with real money yeah. and real power to get this cracking, right? <laughs> like, exactly. Um, not only that, we're introduced to people who will become major characters. So in addition to all the doc guys and the Greeks that we just talked about, we see prop joe who is super important yes we see brother muzone who is also going to be very important we see bunny colvin for the first time (laughs) big bunny shows up. yeah big bunny shows up (laughs) uh cheese not necessarily a super important character but he's necessary and it's funny that this almost felt like a throwaway season the first time you watch it but like d'angelo gets killed in this season Mm -hmm. which is also a major turning point because him being killed and what led up to him being killed shows us the beginnings of the cracks between Stringer and Avon. Right. So like all of this important stuff is happening in what we initially thought was a throwaway. It was season. something that we shouldn't even waste our time watching. <laughs> yeah. If any of you are rewatching the series, you don't want to skip season two. Not at all. And you're going to you miss out on so much. Yeah. And if you haven't watched any of it at all don't skip season two don't skip season two but also maybe stop listening to the podcast right now because i've already given some spoilers yeah i will be giving a lot more yeah this entire episode (laughs) can just be considered a spoiler yeah so come back to this if you haven't watched it at all right and if you're re-watching it again make sure to to pay close attention to all of it, but especially all season the details, two. because like Jonathan Abrams book about the wire says all the pieces map. So remember that. Keep that in mind, yeah. because no matter how small something seems, it means something. Everything is there for a reason. If they didn't introduce what we thought was a new storyline, it's opening it up to the docs and the Greeks and stuff. In theory, they could have kept the story with the drug war, with um, the Barksdales versus Marlowe versus Omar. It still would have been an interesting story, but it would have been more one-dimensional. And I right. think the beauty of this show is showing how, well, as you just said, all the pieces oh, matter. Like, all the pieces matter. Like, it may seem unrelated, but... All of this has to happen to create these circumstances. Yeah. Season one just sort of sets up the drug stuff. And then season two sort of sets up where it comes from. But it also opens the door to certain corruption that's required, like the, right. the politics. Yeah, um, we get introduced to she. Yes. <laughs> Clay Davis. We see Clay Davis. Pops up for the first time mm-hmm. in this season. And we get to see how the politicians play roles in keeping certain businesses open mm-hmm. and how certain developments get made in terms of real estate and how greasing the right palms will get you through many, many doors. And not only does that work for Frank Sabatka in trying to save the docs by getting introduced to all these politicians, including Clay Davis, Mm -hmm. you see that this same relationship is repeated with Stringer down the road. And some of the stuff that Frank is fighting against is what Stringer is going to be fighting for in the following season. 
Like Frank is trying to get these condos and new developments stopped on the docks mm-hmm. because he wants more work for the dock workers. Whereas Stringer is trying to expand his real estate empire in yeah. season three. So he wants these projects to move forward and become more of a legit business. Right. So we see the two dynamics of the Barksdale organization and the Sabakas and the Greeks all coming together through Clay Davis. So all the pieces matter. Yeah. And then we get introduced to, oh, I mentioned already, Prop Joe. Right. So he is super important because what we thought was unrelated, he's getting the drugs from the Greeks. Right. And then the Barksdale in this season start to get their drugs from Prop Joe. Yeah. So Because they've lost their connect mm-hmm. in New York. That, that starts the rift between Avon and Stringer. Which obviously is a very important point yeah. later on because- that's pretty much going to be the downfall yeah. of the Barksdales. And yeah, we see small little cracks in their relationship where they're not on the same page. So Stringer's in his community college business courses. <laughs> yes. And he's trying to think econ of- Econ 101 <laughs> classes. Yep. And he's trying to think about ways to um, use these business concepts for the drug trade. You know, talking about his goddamn market saturation <laughs> that he's trying to- Remember that scene when they're in their new headquarters, the funeral home, and he got all the boys- in the room and he's so that they're running out of product so they're trying to figure out how to keep selling this shitty yeah. product he had talked to his professor like the day before <laughs> right. or something in his evening course and now he's coming to try and teach them <laughs> yeah. what he just and learned because he's, he's the like, expert they're just sitting around like okay <laughs> and then you know Bodhi comes up with like oh we can just change the names so they'll think that we're selling different things, right? which leads into something pretty funny. One of the names of the drugs was pandemic, <laughs> pandemic, which As is we watch this during a pandemic. Yeah, it just kind of hits you unexpectedly <laughs> hearing that <laughs> um, uh, something else that I've completely forgot about kind of shows that Stringer wasn't the businessman that he thought he was. Mm-hmm. He was investing in different cell phone companies. And he's on the phone in the car telling someone to stop investing in cell phones because he sees Poot with two phones. 600 shares of Noxa. That's right. Yeah, right. No, I want you to drop all the cell of the joints. Yeah, all of them. Nokia, Motorola. Listen, this string will play Wall Street. <laughs> all right, so call me. Yeah. Yo, uh, String, you so down on the phone companies, man. A while back, I took a stroll through the, the pit. And I saw that kid we got running things down there, uh, Poot. <laughs> now, he got the cell phone I gave him for the business right there on his hip, but the nigga got another cell phone that only ring when the pussy call. <laughs> now, if this no-count nigga got two cell phones, how the fuck you gonna sell any more of them motherfuckers? That's market saturation. Like, no, everyone does have a cell phone now, and you could have been making more money. But no, you're Stringer the genius businessman. Because <laughs> you took a couple evening courses. Yeah. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking evening courses there's and betting yourself. Not at all. But he took what he learned in 30 minutes and thought he was an expert. Yes, which is that's funny. the problem. It took the second watch to realize... He's not as smart as he thought he was. Because the first time I watched it, I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh, look at him trying to turn this into a business. And it seemed like a good idea. It did. In some ways, it did work. He created the co-op, but it only works if everyone else agrees. Right. And if they don't agree, the repercussions are way different than in the business world. And Avon knows that. When he went to visit Avon and Joe, and this is when you first start to see the cracks between the two of them. And this is in season two. He's trying to convince Avon that they need to work with Prop Joe because Prop Joe got the product. And he's dead set against it. Stringer's trying to use his little business school speak again. (laughs) And then Avon's like, I don't need to hear that business school stuff. And he says, the streets is always going to be the streets. (laughs) And the thing is, you're made to believe that Stringer is smart. Because right. he's going to school and he's applying business logic to it. And but Avon's he, just this gangster. Right, yeah, Avon's just a gangster. He's just a hood guy, whatever. Avon is smart because he, he knows is. when these situations going to apply. Right. So he's like, you can give me all this business speak, but it's just not going to work that way. <laughs> right. right. As we see with Marlo later on, that you can create this co-op and apply your business principles. But once you meet a gangster that's not down with that. Then he's going to mess everything yeah, up. Is This is not a business deal where you can just find a new business. Partner. Right. He's just gonna come and kill you. Or <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, These are life and death circumstances. Right. 
we see the beginnings of Stringer's downfall, where he thinks that as long as he legitimizes himself, everything's going to be okay. But he doesn't realize that that's not the game he's in. Right. And even when he does get in with Clay, he thinks, oh, I'm, I'm moving on up. Clay still looks down on him. He's like, yeah. you're nothing but a gangster to me. And he sees the <laughs> yeah. scam coming a mile away. He's like, oh, I can rip yeah. this guy off. He's dumb. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Avon sees the scam. Yeah. But Stringer doesn't because he's smarter than everybody else. Right. And just thinking about this right now, I say that Nikki and Ziggy are a lot alike. Okay. But Nikki doesn't realize it. But just this conversation right now, I realize that Stringer and Nikki are a lot alike mm, as well. Because they both are, think they're smarter than they are. Yeah, they both think that they're smarter than they are when mm-hmm. they're not. And it's funny that D'Angelo and white D'Angelo Ziggy... <laughs> Are very similar in the same way that they are the black sheep. They're the fuck up of the family, but they have their moments of clarity where they're actually really smart, too. Yeah. I think with Ziggy, it's hard to see that because he's such an obvious fuck up. He's he's walking around with a duck on a leash. (laughs) Right. With a diamond necklace. Yeah. He's just too goofy to take serious. Whereas D'Angelo, his heart wasn't in business. He didn't want to be there. So he let a lot of things slip that should. Right. Whereas Ziggy, he's just an idiot. (laughs) Um, So that it's hard to to see the times where he's actually good at something. Like when they ran that scam with the cameras that they stole off the docks. Right. Because Double G was going to give him one price and Nikki was willing to accept it because Mm -hmm. he's so desperate for cash. He's going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And Ziggy's like, no, I know how much these cameras Mm -hmm. cost. And you're going to give us this amount for otherwise I'm taking them down the street to sell them to somebody else. And that's when Double G was like, you know what? You're right. Right. (laughs) I agree to your terms. We can go ahead and make this deal. But Ziggy being Ziggy, he takes one of the cameras and takes (laughs) Double G's picture. It's like, you can't be taking pictures of criminals with digital cameras. So that's the highs and lows with Ziggy. Like he'll do something really smart and surprise you. And then 30 seconds later, fuck it up. Well, those highs, those are far and few. They were. (laughs) (laughs) But his highs were actually bigger than Nikki's high. And we see sparks of what maybe he could have been if his right. circumstances were different. Yeah. Like if Ziggy was part of the Barksdale organization, he probably would have had a better outcome. What? No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm working through this. Because think about okay. it. Because see how nurturing they were with D'Angelo? Yeah. I'm sure Ziggy would have gotten that same nurturing rather than always getting clowned all the time okay yeah because i think a lot of ziggy's problems is i mean i think he's naturally a goofball but a lot of it stems from feeling unloved yeah and trying to prove himself all the time because he did he 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 felt like his dad frank never really had his back yeah and everyone at the docks was always picking on him and and making fun of him stuff which some of it he brought on himself he did but it also still wasn't necessarily nice how they picked on him yeah he was just the easy target <laughs> yeah whereas for his cousin nikki he was the golden boy mm-hmm. everybody oh nikki's so smart nico he, yeah, the greeks loved him the nico. greeks loved him the guys on the docks loved him mm-hmm. but ziggy's the fuck up nikki was a piece of shit he was probably one of the worst characters actually he was because he was so mean to his baby's mother first yeah. of all he he cared about Ziggy. He did try to take care of him, though. But back to what we were saying, he was not as smart as he thought he was. No. But not only that, another interesting side to this story is seeing the difference between how, I guess, like the white criminals see themselves versus the black criminals. Like the Barksdales, all the drug people. It was like, this is this just is how we grow up and this is just work to us. Like, right. this, is, this is life. It was just sort of, it is what it is. Whereas uh, Frank... And Nikki had convinced themselves that they were better right. than other criminals. Uh, Nikki eventually gets into drug dealing and stuff, but he was better than uh, he throw the N word around all the time. He was the better time. than the the project boss, yeah. <laughs> even though he's literally selling drugs as well. Yeah. He's getting mad at Frog, one of the white drug dealers, because you know he he got the baggy clothes, he got the the little black scent, right. <laughs> and he's like, "Excuse me, you're white." He's trying to tell him like he's somehow better. And it's like, you all are literally doing the same thing. But to him, he's just like, no, like, I'm just doing this because, you know, it's 
hard times out there working on the docks and I just need money for my baby and my girlfriend. He somehow convinced himself that he's more noble. Right. While simultaneously looking down at people who are doing the same thing as him, but because they're black, it's somehow worse. Yeah, because Ziggy came to him first with the idea to do it. And that's when he was like, no, I'm not going to be out on the corner like some project niggas. Mm -hmm. And Ziggy's like, no. Oh, no, he dropped the hard ER. (laughs) He did. (laughs) And Ziggy's like, no, we need money. Right. We broke. Let's go over here and get this Uh package from White Mike. We go flip it, make some money. Everybody wins. And Nikki's dead set against it. Yeah. But by the end of like episode six or seven, instead of taking cash for a payment, he takes half cash and half heroin. Mm -hmm. Because now I'm not actually a drug dealer. I'm just the middleman. It's like, no, you're the same as everybody you say that you're against. Exactly. And making fun of Ziggy and telling him how stupid he is for doing it. Mm-hmm. Now you want to take over his organization. Because he went and got the deal with Cheese. He right. made that work with uh, get Ziggy's money back from Frog. So that makes him feel, in his mind, he thinks he's Avon now. Yeah. <laughs> but better than Avon because, <laughs> because he's not he's black. on the projects. Yeah. And yeah. he's not on the corners. Right. But... He always thinks that he's smarter than he is because he Mm -hmm. has these people propping him up, telling him that he's the smart one when that could have been Ziggy, too. And you also see that sort of entitlement with Frank as well. Like, I really do think that he really did care about the union and his dock workers. But he also had this sense of entitlement, like, I'm not committing crimes. Yeah. I'm helping people. And also, <laughs> I'm the only one who can fix yes. it. Do you see that they do have relationships with black people? But when push comes to shove, yeah, they put themselves first. Yeah. Because actually, there's this, there's a scene where he's speaking with Nat and oh, Frank. And he's saying, I can't remember exactly who he's speaking of. And he was like, they're going to treat us all like N-words. Yeah. Like, Excuse my French. Right? right. And then... Nat was like, or, and then he says, well, the Polish slur, right? right? And it's like, why didn't Franks just say that then? Like, you see a black man sitting in front of you, (laughs) and I get the point that you're trying to make, but like, he's your friend. Don't say that word, right? But then he was supposed, Nat was supposed to run next, but Frank Sabaka was like, no, I need to run one more time because I need to finish this. And he's like, it's my time. You said so. Right. Right. Yeah. And so it's interesting how introducing white characters in the show kind of opens up how race plays into life (laughs) and just sort of how you view criminality and all that stuff. Yeah. So I think that was very smart on their part to explore those themes as well. Yeah. In terms of the old cops coming back, uh, we know that everybody's kind of scattered around. Mm -hmm. Valchek really wants to take down the Sabatkas <laughs> all over stained glass window. over this stained glass window. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes to Burrell, asks for a detail to investigate. These guys are the worst of the worst. He puts his son-in-law Prez in charge, mm-hmm. who was from season one as well. And basically at a dinner, Prez is like, look, these guys are fucking up. What you need to do is get my old crew back together. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Daniels, he had everything running perfectly. We were about to take down the Barksdales with this, this and that, but the feds didn't want to do this because it wasn't enough dope on the table and blah, blah, blah. So that's when Valchek starts thinking, like, wait a minute, I was told I was getting the best of the best and I'm getting these humps. He comes down and sees them playing poker. They're doing crossword <laughs> puzzles. Uh, and that's when he basically bullies Burrell into giving him Lieutenant Daniels right. plus his old detail back. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets the gang back together, minus McNulty and Sidner. I don't know where Sidner is this season. He doesn't show up at all. But McNulty's still stuck on the boat. Good news is I got no problem with anyone on your list. Except McNulty. No McNulty. Nothing that even resembles the son of a bitch. That bad, huh? He quits or he drowns. That's the only two things get him off the fucking boat, so help me God. But he does make it off eventually. He does. But it took some it took a lot of effort. It did, <laughs> only because Lieutenant Daniels did him a solid. He did him and several solids. <laughs> several solids. <laughs> And Bunk basically begged for them to let him come back. Otherwise, he was going to die out there on that boat. The gang is now back together, and now they're investigating the Sabatkas. Not knowing that <laughs> what the they're actually going to fall into by accident is something completely different and ties this case with their case from the previous season. Yeah. And that ties everything together eventually. Not only is season two 
more important than we remembered it to be in the first season. It actually ties season one in and yeah. opens the door for season three, four, and five. Yeah, and if you skip season two, you won't know that. And if you half-ass watch it like I did when it was on during its first run, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. Because I watched these episodes, but it was like, uh, where's Omar? Yeah, you watched it while it was actually on air, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, when is Bubbles going to show up? When is this going to happen? Well, see, this makes sense in terms of, like, viewership because apparently season two was, like, the highest viewed season. Yes. Because everyone who enjoyed it from season one probably told some friends. Right. And then everyone is like, oh, yeah, let's let's watch the show. And then they probably watched season two. It was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> exactly. And didn't come back. <laughs> yeah. Right? I barely came back. Because I was shocked when I found out that season two was the highest viewed season because I'm like, why that season? Right. That one where they... The, Doc guys, <laughs> like you just, it's just, it's funny how your perception changes once you know the full story. Yeah. Yeah. Because now I quite, on rewatch, I really enjoyed season two. Yeah. It's one of the better ones. It's not my favorite, mm-hmm. but I will say it's my second favorite. My original watching, it was not like that. Nope. It was like, what is this bullshit? Why is it on yeah. my TV every week? And then when we watched it the second time, I was like, wow. Bodie's here a lot. Yeah. And Avon's, well, not necessarily a lot, but they were very present, right? They were always around each episode. At yeah. least you'd see them. Like Avon's in jail and he's around just as much as he is in every other season that mm-hmm. he's in. Because it, it's not like season one focused on him mm-hmm. all the time. Like he was literally in it about the same amount of screen time. Yeah. And all of the characters from season one uh, who are still alive, <laughs> all the ones who are still alive, their characters continue to develop as yeah. well. We see, as we mentioned already, the the rift that's happening between Stringer and Avon. We see uh, Bodhi sort of, I said he was settling into middle management, but you see how excited he is to be right. part of middle management. <laughs> but as we see with later seasons, he becomes disillusioned when yeah. he realizes he can never move. He realized he'll never be a smart ass pawn. <laughs> right. right? So that uh, chess scene in season one where <laughs> D'Angelo is trying to explain to him how chess works by relating it to the Barksdale organization. And D'Angelo is trying to tell him the pawn can never be the king. This is the kingpin. All right. And he the man. But the rest of these motherfuckers on the team, they got his back and they run so deep. He really ain't got to do shit. I like your uncle. Yeah, like my uncle. What about them little bald headed bitches right there? Right, these right here, these are the pawns. They like the soldiers. The pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They be out the game early. Unless they some smart-ass pawns. He thinks he's becoming a smart-ass pawn in season two because he's right. moving up. And he's cozying up to the number two stringer. But as we see, he's leaning into that middle management. But then he sees that it's never going to get any better. Yep, and he, he realizes, will always be the pawn. Yeah, he will always be the pawn, no matter how smart he is. It's just interesting seeing it now. The development and knowing what to look for versus watching it the first time and wondering what's going on. Yeah. So what was your favorite season then? My favorite season was probably season three, just because and I would say this because on this rewatch when we did it earlier this Mm -hmm. summer knowing how season two ties everything together. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that the first time. Like I like season three for different reasons. The first time I watch it because it's like, okay, all my favorites are back. Whereas this time it's like, I see how the bridge between right. one and three makes sense. It's my favorite for two t- entirely different reasons, which is weird. Okay. So then what are your favorite moments from season two? It's just a bunch of little things like, yeah. uh, when BD and Bunk are having a conversation about something, I don't even remember what they were talking about, and she just goes, me too. Well, they had one hell of a dice game going on below deck. Well, them boys popped them girls out of that can. You talk to the crew? In what language? Crime scene? Nope. Anybody missing? Two guys jump ship. One in Philly, one in Norfolk. But that shit happens all the time, apparently. That bothers you? Yeah, a little. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to rewind it. It was like, did she say that? And then I hear her say it again. Yeah. 
in another episode when they're counting the containers. Right. She's like, one, two. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just funny because first watch, I didn't know what a Baltimore accent was supposed to sound like. But rewatching it, I've been catching a lot of those little ooh sounds and stuff. And also now you can really tell who is a real Baltimorean right. versus the ones who aren't. Because like, I remember my mind being blown when I found out Idris Elba was British. Yeah. But now I'm rewatching. I'm like, oh, that accent was bad. It was. <laughs> like, I don't know what his accent is supposed to be. Ameri- just general American. Yeah, because it doesn't sound like anything. <laughs> He's general black American. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is he from Baltimore? Is he supposed to be from New York? It's like, what is this accent? Like, none of it makes any sense. Right. Like, you can, Snoop is so Baltimore. Yes. Right? Now that I realize they're not just trying to whitewash the show, I can actually like enjoy it for what it is. Right. <laughs> So I actually really like a lot of things that happened with the new characters. Just little small things like the the doc guys had all these nicknames. Yeah. You had Big Roy, who was the small guy. And he's like, not you, small. No, no. Little Big Roy. Little Big Roy, who was the big dude. <laughs> yeah. And then there, of course, Horseface. Yes. Which is funny that his nickname is Horseface. But then he got a further nickname. Sometimes they would call him Horsey. Yeah. Or just Horse. <laughs> And as BD says, when they asked him, how did he get that nickname? And BD's like, do I have to explain it to you? <laughs> yeah, just like, look at him. And then there was your favorite, New Charles. <laughs> yes, New Charles came to be because old Charles was crushed by a crate and killed. <laughs> so now he's New Charles. And then New Charles lost his leg by getting crushed by a crate. So they renamed him Tilt. It's the circle of life. There were some other pretty good ones, too, but now I can't remember off the top of my head, but everyone had... Yeah, Ziggy, Johnny 50. Oh, there was, like, Big Nose or something like that, too. Yeah. (laughs) Something Nose. And I also realized that I really like Sergei's character. He's, like, the muscle for the Greeks. Yeah. But he was so... was good. Yeah, Sergei, he was a very one-dimensional character, but he really leaned into it. He was just like, I'm muscle, and I enjoy that. Yeah. And so when White Mike was asking him about a dead body, he was like... Did he have hands? Did he have a face? Yes? Then it wasn't us. It was like he was offended that <laughs> yeah. White Mike would actually ask him to do that. Because after he hung up the phone, he's like, idiot. <laughs> yeah. And then we get introduced to the, the white-on-white racism where <laughs> the, the, everyone just calls him Boris and just assumes yeah. he's Russian. He's like, I'm from, it wasn't even like from Kiev. Yeah. And they're like, same difference, Boris. <laughs> he's like, why Boris? <laughs> why always Boris? It's like, what is Boris? Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> He's like, Sergey. <laughs> and uh, Sergey actually has a role later on mm-hmm. when he connects Avon and Prop Joe mm-hmm. with Marlo. Because Marlo actually makes the connect to go okay. see uh, Sergey, but Avon's sitting there when he shows up. So a lot of foreshadowing in yes. season two, as we've been talking about. Things just sprinkle out from season two all through three, four, and five. Also, one of your other favorite scenes in the season, Omar, in the courtroom. Which is the greatest scene as, in the history of he The Wire. the best witness ever? <laughs> of all time. He had the jury in stitches with his colorful storytelling and his way of speaking. Yes, he just laid everything out in a lie, too. Like, he didn't even see Bird with the gun. He's yeah. just out for revenge, but he <laughs> sold it so well that it still got Bird convicted. But when they asked him, you know, what do you do for a living? And he's like, I rip and I run. <laughs> and so Levy, the lawyer for the Barksdales, is trying to paint him as like, oh, he's just some violent person who's like, he's not a credible witness. He's just... And he's only doing it because he got arrested and yeah. he's gonna get some time off. And Omar's like, no, I didn't get arrested for anything. Yeah. I just don't like him. <laughs> exactly. When he was trying to paint him as like a villain he asked him about his attempted murder charge he's like that was an attempted murder <laughs> and he says something about uh, i just shot, shot him, him in hind parts, parts. <laughs> followed by one count of attempted murder and use of a handgun in commission of a felony that wasn't no attempt murder what was it mr little i shot the boy mike mike in his hind parts that all <laughs> fixed it so he couldn't sit right <laughs> why'd you shoot mike mike in his um his hind parts mr little well, you see, Mike Mike thought he should keep that cocaine he was slinging and the money he was making from slinging it. I thought otherwise. Uh, so he was such a star witness that he earned a get out of free, get, get out, out of jail, jail free, free card. <laughs> a literal get out a of literal. jail free card. She, the prosecutor actually gave him her business card. was like, all right, anything up to assault, <laughs> yeah. give me a call and I'll get you out. <laughs> uh, also, another one that I liked is when... Brother Muzon shows up for the mm. first time. 
also leading into this rift between Avon and Stringer. He didn't know that Avon had called for Brother Muzon to come up and he goes straight to the towers and like, you know what? All these prop Joe people need to get up out of here because this is what Avon wants. So Mm -hmm. cheese is trying to stand up to him and he shoots him in the shoulder with the pellets. And he's like (laughs) in the middle of him trying to clown brother Muzon. He's just taking a shot to the shoulder. First of all, we got permission to grind in these here towers. Second of all, I don't give a fuck what the fuck you need. Pellets in plastic. Rancho. What you need be concerned about is what's seated in the chamber now. A copper jacket at hollow point, 120 grain hot street load of my own creation. So you need to think for just a moment and ask yourself, what do I have to do before this man raise up his gun again? Good day to you, sir. And he just makes cheese run off with his tail between his legs again. And that's our introduction to Brother Muzone and how Mm -hmm. eventually he's going to play a bigger role going into next season. Yeah. On top of sort of introducing these characters to like expand the storyline, just in general, what The Wire does so great is just storytelling in general and paying attention to all the the small details. So the scene where Ziggy finally meets his breaking point when he's going to Double G's store to get money for some cars that he stole for him. Double G punks him basically and was like, nah, I'm not giving you the money we agreed on. I'm giving you less because Double G thinks he can get away with right. it, right? And Ziggy, he's just tired of being the brunt of the jokes. He's tired of not being taken serious, all that stuff. Just re-watching the scene made me realize just how powerful this was because you feel him break. So when he leaves the store, it's completely silent Except for you can hear like some jackhammers of some street um, construction that's going on. But just hearing nothing else, you see him walk to the car and the way the camera pans from behind and comes up to the front to see his face. You can see him screaming, but you can't hear it. All you hear is jackhammers. You can see him pounding on the steering wheel and then you see him grab his gun and it makes it feel very surreal. And it's almost like the jackhammers add to that. Being the only right. sound that you have, you feel like, oh, because you know how it feels when you're hearing Jack. Yeah. It's not a pleasant feeling. And so that is such um, immaculate storytelling that there's no words, but you feel this break that he's yeah. having. I actually, when I was watching it, thought it was a dream sequence because just knowing Ziggy's character, it's like, mm-hmm. there's no way he's going to actually pull the trigger on these people. So when he came out and like you said, the way it was shot it just seemed like it was a dream sequence. And as he's banging on the steering wheel and he stops, I thought that, okay, he had dreamt the whole thing. He was daydreaming. And I was like, man, that's some device we've never seen in the wire before fantasy elements. (laughs) But then you find out, no, he actually did kill double G and shot the other guy Mm -hmm. in the store. Once you hear the police cars starting to pull Mm -hmm. up the street. So I I thought that was really good too. And it's kind of like what you're saying about the dream sequence. It's interesting that once it happened, then the rest of the sound came back in. It's like he's back in reality. Yeah. He had this break where he's like outside of himself. And then as soon as it happens, reality hits him. Now he can, now we can hear the sirens. We can hear that the jackhammering has stopped because those people have probably scattered after (laughs) hearing the gunshots. And now we're brought back to like, this actually happened. He really did this. Yeah. That to me is such smart, um, I don't know my TV words, but like storytelling, <laughs> filming, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Right? Um, I also, the scene where D'Angelo gets killed. So he's basically set up to look like he commits suicide. Oh boy, put the belt around his neck and lean him up against the door, tied the belt to the door handle to make it look like he just leaned over and like asphyxiated himself. And as the camera pans away, you know, people are just walking back and forth in and out of the library, not knowing what had happened. And you see his shadow underneath the door yeah and it is absolutely heartbreaking because you know that he's just dead on right. the other side as no fault of his own stringer just thought that he might rat yeah and so he set this in motion but just seeing such a small detail as a little shadow underneath the door it just like it it added this extra oomph <laughs> to right. like what you're feeling already like you're already feeling bad that he's been murdered and then they just they twist the knife by right. panning back slowly and making sure we see that shadow. It's like you know he did, right? <laughs> yeah. He didn't make it out of this. Alright, so we've 
solidified that season two is not a throwaway season. It is not. It is Mm -hmm. the most important season Mm -hmm. in all five seasons of The Wire. So where would you say the entire show itself ranks in terms of just best TV shows? Uh, My top five list always shifts and whatever I'm watching at the time, I think, is mm-hmm. the best show of all time. And right now, since we've been watching The Wire, mm-hmm. I'm going to say The Wire is the best TV show of all <laughs> okay. time. But that list is fluid. Yeah, I'm sure if I watch The Sopranos again, I'd probably say that The Sopranos is the best show of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between The Wire and The Sopranos, Breaking Bad and stuff like that mm-hmm. is the story changes every season with The Wire. And... The focus changes. Yes. Yeah, the focus changes, Mm -hmm. but the story stays the same. Yeah, or it's continued. Yeah, whereas with these other shows, you're basically going to talk about Tony Soprano and his crew and the beefs that they get into. Or Walter White trying to raise money to leave to his family and all Mm -hmm. the shit that him and Jesse get into. Mm -hmm. Whereas with The Wire, it's something different every season. So season one, we're with Barksdale's and the cops. Season two, we're on the dock. Season three... Mm -hmm. We're kind of shifting between uh, the politicians, the police, the docs, the projects. Right. All of these things schools. are shifting. Uh, that's, we get the schools in season yep. four. We get the, the media, media in season mm-hmm. five. So everything changes or the focus changes every season, right. but it stays the same. The focus changes to allow us to see how actually everything relates. Yeah, and how everything ties together. Which hence all, all the pieces, pieces matter. matter, right? <laughs> The only star of the show really is the city of Baltimore, whereas everybody else is interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't matter who you are. You can be killed at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how big you think this person is and how important they are yeah. to the story, they can be gone yeah. instantly. Don't bother with any favors. Remember how yeah. heartbroken we were when Wallace was killed <laughs> only to get five more Wallaces in yeah. season four? <laughs> so don't get attached to people because they are not the focus. It might seem yeah. like McNulty is the star of the show because he's always there. He's always in the mix. He's al- <laughs> always finds a way to be in the mix. The, right. s- the star of the show is the city of Baltimore. I think the power of it, too, was with you saying this, the star is the city of Baltimore is that they did take the extra care to, uh, you know, have real people also play right. a star in the show. Like Snoop was not an actor. She was an actor before that. And I believe that's how Snoop is. She went to jail for something. I don't think she's that like, she hasn't killed anybody. Yeah. I don't think she's that. She's not that far removed from <laughs> yeah, the Snoop but I character. Think in terms of the overall person, I feel like that is really Snoop. And they yeah. gave her the name Snoop. Like that's right. literally her name. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Felicia Pearson, but like her nickname is, actually snoop as yeah. well and it's funny because some characters were not playing themselves <laughs> yeah so you have characters throughout the show that are based on real people like you have the real avon in the show playing mm-hmm. someone else he was playing like the the church dude right? yeah he plays a uh, deacon and you have jay landsman yeah. actually playing another cop while another person an actor plays jay landsman yeah so things like that so yeah, there's but- a bunch of like local people that were involved in like the history of Baltimore involved in this show. It actually made it feel more authentic rather than like, who's this person with this stiff acting or whatever? Right. Like, it just felt like you're like, oh yeah, this person's really from Baltimore. Yeah. Cause like you listen to the way Snoop talk versus the way Stringer talks with his general American accent. <laughs> right. Like you Default can tell, accent. you can like, you mean now that we know and we're a little bit more familiar with Baltimore in general, when I rewatch it, I'm like, oh yeah, that person's yeah. like not a real actor. That's just a Baltimore person. Right. right? Even though it's so very like Baltimore centric, I think what makes uh, The Wire such a great show, the stories are transferable to other communities, other cities, because you get to know the characters as people that they almost feel like people, you know, right? uh, people that you care about, because that's why you feel bad when they get killed. (laughs) And so they're able to like. Uh, draw you in emotionally like i remember when i watched in season one where akima gets shot it was already like one in the morning and i was like (laughs) i need to know if she dies so if i watch another episode i could still get four hours of sleep before work like like i was so invested (laughs) in the story right and in the people and i think that's what makes the show so great that we can watch this like what 15 or plus years later and it still feels so relevant it feels so current if it 
wasn't for those long tees and them listening to <laughs> Sean Paul, Sean Paul all the time, Sean and, Paul and G and like using beepers and such. So if it wasn't for the technology, uh, the music and the fashion, like this could be now, like yeah. this show could come out now and it would still be relevant. It would still be interesting. People would still want to watch it. I think. Yeah. To close this episode, mm-hmm. I got one more question for you. Okay. They used the same theme song for all the seasons, but they had different versions of it. Right. So which one is your favorite version? My favorite is going to be the same as my favorite season. That's season three when the Neville brothers do it. Okay. That's my favorite one. That one was like the most upbeat out of the five so the original song is by tom waits and mm-hmm. they use his version in season two the first one is the blind boys of alabama and the neville brothers of season three my favorite part of that one though is like when he hits the high note where he's like if you walk with jesus <laughs> <laughs> and then season four which at the time when i first watched it early 2000s it was some group called domage and apparently they don't have any other songs but they made like this hip-hop version and listening to it now it sounds so dated i didn't like it then <laughs> I, and I hate it, it even more now right now it sounds so dated it's terrible <laughs> and um season five is steve earl who plays the uh he, he's Wayland. in the show later on plays wayland and i really like his character so he plays like an aa leader sponsor he ends up being bub's sponsors the way he speaks he's just like so poetic and there's a scene where he talks about why it's so hard to quit drugs and it almost makes me want to take drugs <laughs> because of the way he describes it he said something like it feels almost something like heaven and i'm like wow like whatever he said was way more poetic than what i just said but i was just like this man can he knows how to talk right (laughs) and so i don't know if maybe that makes me biased that i just like his version the best which is season five i'd say my second one favorite actually would be the tom waits version well my it's my second favorite for (laughs) a different reason uh it's because of the third base album i never remember the name of the skit but Search is pretending to be Tom Waits. <laughs> and I didn't realize that was a real song until I started watching The Wire. But just hearing him butcher this song horribly <laughs> is always hilarious to me. And I, I was probably 13, 14 when I heard this for the for- first time and I thought it was hilarious. Right. So <laughs> that's my favorite for or second favorite for entirely different reasons. All right. We definitely got to add this to our companion playlist. Yes. So if, if you don't know the two versions then I will have them back to back. Yeah. Because when you showed it to me, it just makes so much more sense when you know the original song. Right. (laughs) Cause the song is ridiculous to begin with, but then you realize he's pretending to be somebody else. That just makes it even better. All right. So that wraps up this episode of the reminisce over you. Make sure to follow us on social media, Instagram at Troy podcast on the bird at Troy podcast. Uh, you can check our website, TroyPodcast.com. You can see my fancy coding skills, which is <laughs> yes. kind of my day job. Uh, <laughs> some little transitioning colors. Under change graphic. colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, <laughs> if you're interested, we put together companion playlists to go along with these episodes. All you got to do is go to Spotify, search the title of the episode, for example. This one's called, If I Hear the Music, I'm Going to Dance. You search that, this playlist is going to pop up, so... Make sure to check all those out for this and other episodes as well. Uh, If you don't want to listen to us on your podcast service of choice, you can check us out on YouTube as well. So if you're a YouTube person, rate and subscribe there too. That's all I got. All right. I guess we'll check you guys out in a couple of weeks. Yep. See you in two weeks. Deuces, silly gooses. (laughs) Bye. Bye. is